down in Petersburg, everything's fine. All lamb cats is drinking that wine, drinking that mess is their delight. When he gets drunk, start singing all night, drinking wine, for you to drink wine. Wine, for you to drink wine. Wine, for you to drink wine. Pass that bottle to me. Drinking that mess is their delight. When he gets drunk, start fighting all night. Knock down windows and tear down doors. Welcome to Tasting Anarchy. I'm your host, Jacob Lindsay, and as always, I'm joined by... And uh, this week, I think we've got a good show planned for you. I found some cool articles, and we have one article left over from last week that doesn't exactly have to do with wine, but it piqued both Mason's and my interest. But this week, it's Mason's Week for Wine, so I hear that you have chosen something that is very popular here in Texas and has been one of my favorites for the last couple of weeks. Uh, you want to yeah. go ahead and get into that right away? Yeah. So um, I'll give the little backstory on how I found this wine real quick. So Ashley and I, my wife and I went to Kroger to um, get groceries like we normally do. And we went to get a, um, a wine for her to cook pot roast with. So she was looking for a wine that had certain characteristics and she told those characteristics to the like salmonier that Kroger hands or whatever mm-hmm. you want to call them. And so he pointed to a bottle of wine Ashley had in her hand, and it's actually the wine that I'm drinking tonight, and it's uh, El Pensador, uh, and it's their, and I always mispronounce the, the varietal, but it's Tempaninillo. I think that's right, but it's hard, yeah. it's hard for me to pronounce also. I just, yeah. I know it's very popular here, and, mm-hmm. it's, and that it's a Spanish varietal, but yes. I don't know much else besides that. Yeah, so it's spelled T-E-M-P-I-N. A N I L L O. Now that's the Spanish variety spelling. I think the um like sometimes they spell it some places spell it a little differently. And there are several others that refer to it by different ones. So I've got the twenty seventeen here. It's a fourteen percent alcohol by volume. Um so like this is one of those wines that Every time I have it, and I've had a couple of them now, it's super great. So they kind of say like the description from wine.com of the varietal um, produces medium weight reds with strawberry and uh, black fruit characteristics. And depending on yield, growing conditions, and winemaking, so pretty much everything else, can produce hints of spice, toast, leather, tobacco, herb, and vanilla. Now, the other week, I referred to this one, and I got it wrong because I thought I had a Chilean one. Because I was like, man, we can do a Chilean taste off. You know, okay. like you get a Spanish or you get a Texas one. I'll send you a Chilean one. You know, we'll kind of do a mix. Right. This is actually Spanish. Oh, okay. Like, but still really good. So uh, this one, it's like, you know, like uh, it's like super dark and black in color. Yeah, yeah. Um, the bouquet is very, to me, yeasty. Mm. Um but it also reminds me of like the pot roast my wife makes. So I'm not sure if I'm like picking up residual yeast smells because of the pot roast, which we usually have a yeasty bread with. But I mean, this is a uh, like for pairings. Uh, some wine.com says modest fine grain tannins, good acidity. I mean, this has good acidity, made extremely food friendly. Pairs uh, with a variety of Spanish inspired dishes, especially grilled lamb chops, or rich trees, and beans to a paella. But I mean, it goes wonderful. Anything fatty. Because the mm-hmm. acid in it is going to take the fat off your tongue. 
really pops. Yeah, I, I've actually been really into Spanish varietals lately, or not just the Spanish varietals, but also the Spanish blends for the uh, Rojas or what Rojas I think it's called, because mm-hmm. that pack of wines that I got from Wall Street Journal, which actually didn't you share an article with me earlier this week that said that the Wall Street Journal thing was like a scam kind of? It's suspicious. Well, it, it was yeah. one of those ones. It didn't call anyone out specifically, but it was like. If you look at the math, this doesn't make sense. Right. And, and you know what? And so. I, I took a look at that because I was like, you know what? These wines to me seemed like really good wines. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I started doing a little more in-depth search on them. And they are wines from legitimate places. So, mm-hmm. like, for, But the it's sort of like – remember how we used to talk about this about Lidl? That mm-hmm. Lidl would have like Black Stallion, Cabernet Sauvignon. But it looked different and had a different label than the Black Stallion from like Kroger. Yeah. And like, and I couldn't figure out what the difference was. That seems to be what's going on with the Wall Street Journal wines. And Makes I, sense. And I'm not sure what 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 it is that's different about them, but they are from legitimate places. So maybe it's still suspicious. I probably am going to order more because it's a good deal. Well, and here's the thing: like when I thought about that, I kind of felt remiss sending you the article originally because you got such joy out of the wines. Yeah, and they were they were all good except for one, which yeah, was that, just a varietal I don't really like. I'm not crazy about Malbecs. Yeah. And that's the thing is like you enjoyed yourself immensely and like I don't see any reason to not go back right unless you knew that you were just getting like so like there's a thing about um one of the things that I've always kind of thought about it like especially when it comes to like Austrian and and libertarian kind of anarchist philosophy like if you find out you were defrauded five years later but you had no complaints about the transaction at the time. Mm-hmm. How far do you pursue the problem? Right. You know what I mean? Like, so remember back in the day when Western Digital and Seagate and all them got sued because they used the wrong definition of a gigabyte on the hard drives to measure the size? Oh, yeah. Yeah, because it was like each a gigabyte's not exactly that amount, so they were they were just calculating it differently or something? Yeah, basically a gigabyte is a thousand gigs on Ish. a hard drive, yeah. but it's actually 1024. Right. So, um, well, it's a yeah megabyte. So like, but they were, you know, they like got sued or something like that. And I had like proof of purchase for a couple hard drives and I could have gotten like 15, 16, you know, I could have yeah. gotten some money back, but like I was satisfied with my products and I was like, yeah, I knew what this was. Like mm-hmm. I knew the difference. I knew what I was getting. I'm not going to complain. So yeah, well, you and I actually had a a conversation about this earlier this week that's similar and that was that dude in the Netherlands who mm-hmm. is suing to be 49 even though he's 59 or something along those lines mm-hmm. he's and, actually 69 oh 69 yeah so he's 20 years older than what he feels like he is and and I don't know what your position exactly was on it because it's hard to it's hard to infer uh tone in texts mm-hmm. but like I wasn't really offended by it exactly, but I was like, well, no, this is fraud. Like he just, just because the government says that you can change your age to 20 years younger doesn't mean you're 20 years younger. And if you're doing it specifically so you can tell people on a dating app that you're 20 years younger, then you're engaged in a fraudulent activity. Mm -hmm. And then I equated that to, I don't have a problem with people being trans, but if a 
trans person says that they're a, like a trans man, or I'm not sure what you call it, but if a man turns into a woman mm-hmm. and then says that he is a woman and then competes, like for example, in bicycling or the weightlifting or uh, MMA, all of which have happened in the recent couple of years, and then wins, that's a fraudulent win because that person is not what these other people are. He may express or whatever as a woman now, and he can live his life as a woman, but entering into a competition like that for women, and these are women who are biologically and genetically women, that person is going to have a lot of advantages over those people. And I wouldn't have a problem if they let him in and he was like, well, no, I used to be a man and now I'm a woman. Okay, that's one thing. But if he's like, no, I'm a woman and I've always been a woman. And that's what a lot of people are saying about the MMA fighters, for example, where they're like, even when that man had sex with a woman and had a child, they're still a woman. They were still a Mm -hmm. woman at that time. And it's like, no, they were not. Like, that's not reality. You can live your life however you want to live. And I'm and I'm totally fine with that. That's a good libertarian position, but I'm not okay with it. I'm not okay with a fraudulent activity. When it, when you go to that point where you're like, no, I'm a woman, and then you beat the shit out of another woman, that's where I start having a problem. Yeah. So like, I knew a I knew a guy um, who transitioned, and you know, he had a post when he was talking about transitioning, and he was saying like, you know, think back to all those fun memories we had. Now, blah blah blah. Like, I was always a woman in those. Pos- like that time and like one of the things that like bothered me about that statement was like that's how you felt that's not what you expressed to me at the time and that's saying that like my memory like my memory of that event needs to be modified to meet you right instead of saying hey you know it would i would like it if you would it was like this kind of very aggressive stance of yeah. like how you should look at something i was reading a an ask reddit thread about people who like so in the uh like alternative sexuality community like bisexuals are often like not treated the same because they can choose to be with a man if they're a woman or with a woman if they're a man you know like that Mm -hmm. so um i was reading this post and there was this lesbian talking about how back in the like early 80s and 90s when you know homosexuality wasn't accepted and like they didn't have all these legal rights um she understood that like people were kind of like getting on by women because they could basically opt out of the lifestyle and while she didn't think it was fair, she understood where people were coming from because she kind of felt the same thing at the time. And like when I was reading this, I was like, if you were talking about a straight person talking about in the 50s or 60s, you would say, no matter what, they were a homophobic piece of crap. Right. And here you are saying like, well, we just didn't know any better because we didn't know we'd have it so well. It's like now it's like, okay, <laughs> if anybody else said this about just homosexuals in general, you'd be losing your mind even if they were saying that, like, I regret that position. Right the way this person was wording it or and it was just it kind of drove me nuts and that's the thing is like as i was trying to say i don't have a problem with that guy saying he's 49 when he's 69 if he doesn't derive any benefit from it Mm -hmm. from someone else like if he like just going about his day-to-day saying like yeah i feel so good about being 49 especially like in a, a state society where like the government has to give you benefits if you're younger Right. Or older. Like if he goes, I'm 49 and that, you know, takes me out of the running to get health, you know, social security or whatever, because I'm moving my age back and I'm less concerned about it. But I still thought him saying that for the purposes of being on a dating website was driving a benefit that he wasn't due. Right. Yeah. Well, I guess that's, that was my problem, but sort of to, I guess, rein this back into the, (laughs) the Wall Street Journal and back to the uh, temp- tempe- tempion nilo varietal uh i don't think so the the point on wine folly which had this article that said that wall street journal wine was suspicious um 
was that they thought that their advertising practices were were was what the problem was. It wasn't necessarily that the wines were bad wines. It was it was that Wall Street Journal is advertising them as something that they're not. And I don't know if that's the case or not, and I don't know enough about wine to know that. I don't feel like at this point I've been defrauded, especially since it was like $5 a bottle or $6 a bottle or something like that. Uh, and it was all wine that I thought tasted very good. And um, a lot – and like I think about four of them were, these, were Spanish uh, wines, and they were blends with temp, – uh, temp, I'm not going to say it again correctly, but Tempi, Tempianilo. Do you think that's mm-hmm. correct? I'm going to say that that's that's what it is. I think so, temperance. Okay. Well, that, that yeah. They so that they blend a lot of it a lot with you know cab sauv and that sort of thing, and that's been my kind of newest introduction to the Spanish wines. And be, and I don't know if it's because Texas is hot or if it's because Texas used to be a Spanish colony, but they use this either in blends or by itself a lot here, and I've gotten some very good wines that were this varietal. Mm. And um, so I feel I feel very good about it right now. Now, granted, you know, my taste changed from time to time. I was, you know, strictly Cab Sauv until we started the show, and now I've kind of branched out a lot. I've, I've had vignette, several Vigniers the last couple of weeks just because I had that Vignet at the state fair and i thought it was so good and it's a white and i don't normally drink whites but this vna mm-hmm. was great and so i had so i bought another two of them and i had a glass of vna when we were out one night and all different texas uh wine growers and they're very very good um and actually i speaking of texas wine growers if you want to finish up with this wine i do want to skip to our kind of my last flex article just to mention it because i think that this guy's I've, I've been reading his blog and I think it's really interesting. Yeah. So let me give a little bit about uh, this wine variety real quick. Okay. Um, so it's the number one wine variety grown in Spain. Uh, it's fourth in the world. And there's actually a white version. A, so white, a white version of the, Well, you know what? That makes sense because what I was reading is that reds are only red because the skin and vine is left on when they're crushed. Mm-hmm. Uh, or they're they're left to sit with the skin and wine uh, and vine so that that pigment comes into the wine, mm-hmm. whereas whites are pressed and taken separate and left uh, to sit separate so it, it stays white. So that's why you can get a Zinfandel, which is a deep red, well more of like a maroon, I guess. And then you've got white Zinfandel, which is the exact same grape, but they're handled differently, and so they take on a different color. Yeah, so this one, um, there's a lot of aging to them. So, like, this one is not an aged one, um, but for this one itself, um, has high acidity, has, uh, like, lingering ends of strawberry. Mm-hmm. I don't get the strong stra- upfront strawberry flavor, but, mm-hmm. um, I mean, so at Kroger right now in Hampton Roads, they normally sell it for sixteen ninety nine, but it's on sale for eight ninety nine. Okay. I or no, this one is on sale for six ninety nine. Oh wow, that's that's uh, actually a great deal. I hope they have that here for six ninety nine because I'd go per- yeah. pick that up. Then I could give you my notes on it. Yeah, to be yeah, one hundred percent, man. Like if you if you have, find a way to get to Kroger before you fly out on Tuesday, mm-hmm. go for it. I okay. mean, it is awesome. And then so like they put this variety in a lot of the ports, so like a Portuguese port, right? Um, a lot of different varietal name. I mean, it's been around for like. 3,000 years, they think. Um, it's a really interesting wine variety. Uh, so for those of you who have followed the show for a while, we are probably going to drink a bunch of this going forward. Yes. Yeah. It's awesome. It is It is very good. I, I like it a lot. And if you're, if you're at all interested in following the stuff that we're drinking, um, right now, maybe we should start doing like monthly articles or something about the varietals that we're interested in at that time. But like this varietal, Temp- Tempion Nilo and uh, Vignet are the, like the two that I'm really into right now. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, this is, 
this is the variety that I'm into. Um, I won't say like, this is one of those ones where I, I get wines when I can find them. Mm-hmm. And this one just happens to be on sale. Um, cause like I have very hard luck at total wine finding new stuff. Yeah. That isn't like, there's a new one. Like we've got that one. I want to try together if you can get it. Um, but yeah, this is, a. Uh, Really good bottle of wine. Um, super cheap. Um, I can't really give you guys a great description of the flavor. I'm getting a little sick, um, so I'm not getting the, as much of the flavor tonight as normal. Mm-hmm. Um, but as soon as Jacob has some, or he's presuming he gets to have some, we'll definitely have a better description of it. We'll probably revisit yeah. it in another episode we- to kind of give you guys a better like acting description. Yeah, for sure we will, and I, and I have a – there's a – a high plains winery here in Texas. Well, Texas in the Texas high plains, this is like three or four hours away from where I live, but, uh, it's, uh, they, they make a really great Vignet, but they also make a really good, uh, I'm not, I can't ever say the stupid name, but this, this varietal that we're talking about right now, Mm -hmm. um, and it kind of leads me to a the I guess one of my it was going to be my flex topic, but I kind of wanted to talk about this because uh, last weekend I went and had lunch with uh, Car Campit from mm-hmm. the Friends Against Anarchy podcast, the Fagcast, and and they mentioned us on your or they mentioned the guy from Tasting Anarchy because uh, there's not two of us, <laughs> <laughs> right? Well, I think because I'm the only one that interacts with people on Twitter. Oh, so that, that's so, the thing is like I I I didn't take it in any insulting oh, way. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, it, so he and I went to this pretty good barbecue place. It wasn't as good as I remember because Victoria and I went to one to the same one mm-hmm. a while ago, and it was actually it's in Roanoke, Texas. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> so I chose it because it's kind of near by where he's from and where we're from. Car Camp is from North Carolina, mm-hmm. and uh, so I was like, "Well, let's, you know what? He lives in Fort Worth. I live here, so um, we could meet in the, in the middle. And in the middle is roughly Roanoke, Texas. So we went to this barbecue place, and it was pretty good. But while we were there, we got some stuff local to Texas brewing, which I've told you about off the air, but I'm not ready to talk about it on air, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, but through some research and stuff for this this uh, event or whatever that we're working on, I came across a new uh, vineyard that is, I guess, one of the highest altitude vineyards in Texas because Texas is not a mountainous state. It's it's pretty flat and it's pretty low. But this one's elevation is um, 5,400 feet. I didn't think Texas had anything that high. I didn't realize it either, but there is apparently in um, western Texas, there are some, high, you know, the high plains are in northwest Texas, but this is uh, kind of off in the desert area, sort of near El Paso, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and this new vineyard slash winery is called Alta Mar- Marfa. It's just, a, it's a young guy who, um, I think he, he's an engineer and he grew up in Sonoma, but wasn't really interested in wine or anything like that. He ended up going to college in Louisiana. And when he was in Houston, I guess he just started getting really interested in wine and making wine. And he decided to uh, did some research and found out that the weather was really great in this area and mm-hmm. the um, temperature was perfect to grow wine. And then it would be a high elevation, which would be really good for particular types of wine. The only downside was that it didn't have a lot of rain. So he's going to have to do a lot of irrigation, but it, the land's cheap. So he bought some land. He got some money together and got some vines and they don't have any vintages yet. I think they're anticipating their first vintage in 2020. Um but he's got it all planted out. And it looks like the majority of the vines that they have planted are Cabernet Sauvignon. Mm. But he's got a number of other ones. Like he's got, he has 300, uh, I'm going to pronounce this one wrong again because it's French, but it's like Morvedre, mm-hmm. um, which is a, 
a, a red a red wine grape. Um, it's used for blending mostly. But he's got he's got this going on. His blog is super interesting, and you can if everybody wants to check it out, it's just Alta Marfra M A R F A. So it's Alta A L T A Marfra M A R F A dot com. He's got a really interesting blog. He's got several videos up of the of where he's putting the winery in. It's super dry and it's a high altitude, but it's um, to me sounds really awesome. I'm gonna try to go out there and meet with him. It's it's several hours away, but. I, I thought maybe I'd go out there and go camping and then just go check it out. And maybe during harvest or something like that, I could go out there and help them with the harvest and just share that experience with all the listeners just because it's a cool, it's just cool. Like I, I like it when people, they want to do something and they just do it. Like I like that a lot. Yeah. They, I'll tell you, um, like I, I went to the site real quick. Mm-hmm. This is the part of Texas I've always wanted to visit. Yeah. I love it. I, this is like I, a lot of people want places with lots of trees and grass and all that sort of stuff. I've always thought the desert had an austere beauty uh-huh. and I've always really liked it. And it, I think it might be because I'm from a fairly dry part of California, not as dry as this, but mm-hmm. dry. And I've always liked just the way that the dry, a dry area looks. Yeah. It's just, it's, it's an austere beauty. It looks like a place that's hard to survive, but if you survive, there's something special about that. Yeah. So real quick yeah. on Texas facts, mm-hmm. uh, mean elevation in Texas, 1700, 1700 feet. Oh, that's actually higher than I expected. Yeah. Highest point in Texas, 8,751 feet, Guadalupe Peak. Oh, okay. All right. For point of reference, highest point in Virginia, 5,729 feet. Mean elevation, 950 feet. Yeah. So about 3,000 feet taller for the highest point, and the mean height is actually about twice. Right. Okay. So you know what's interesting about Altamarfra? That this area... If, if I can somehow convince Victoria to, to move out there, the average high in the summer is 87 degrees mm-hmm. and the average low is 61 degrees. To Ooh. me, this sounds like the most perfect weather <laughs> on the planet. Well, not on the planet, but it's, it's Mediterranean. And I've always, I've, I like that temperature. It's very similar to where I used to live. In, in August, it would usually get close to 100, but very rarely was it that hot. And it was usually low 90s, high 80s during the summer. And then in the, at night cooled off. And I, I just love that temperature. It's a, it's a really great temperature. And the land out there, I, I was looking at land, super cheap. The only downside is it's dry, mm-hmm. very dry. So I mean, Ashley and I were, you know, semi-joking about moving to New Mexico, and this kind of seems like the kind of the best of the best because we both don't want it to get much over seventy. So eighty-one is pretty good. Yeah, sixty-one in the winter. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I mean, that's not that's not bad at all. I mean, but, maybe yeah. we could have the uh, the Mason Jacob Winery that next be, to his. <laughs> yeah, that'd be awesome. Especially like if his does well, then other people will pick it up. That's just that's always how it works with with you know, wine growing regions mm-hmm. is that somebody tries it and they do well. And then other people start popping up around there. Well, there, it's already an AVA. So yeah. So there must be, there must be some in that area. So, um, but, and actually I think it's a relatively, it's older than Texoma, which is the, the AVA near here. So, cause I think Texoma is 2006 or something like that was when they, um, f- officially declared Texoma an actual AVA. Hmm. Uh, but I don't know that for sure, but I think I think it's something like that. Um, that's but, pretty awesome. Yeah, but that's all I wanted to mention about that. It's just it's cool if you, if you guys want to check out the site. I, I kind of want to send some traffic his way because I, I like I, I like this type of thing when when somebody young just does it. Yeah, it was established in 1998. Oh, okay. For the Texas Davis Mountain. Oh, okay. AVA. Oh, so that's a pretty new one as well. Yeah. Okay. All right. So um, I guess that's it for that one. Do you want to move on to articles? Yeah. 
Okay. So we had an article that was supposed to be a flex article last week or last time we recorded, which we did not get to, but I, I remember you and I were both pretty interested in it. It's not wine related. Mm -hmm. no, um, government related. It is. So it is government related. Yeah. <laughs> so to kind of summarize the article, this is about uh, Austria, which does produce wine. Mm -hmm. And um, they recently, within the last couple of weeks, have decided that they are going to withdraw from the UN Migration Pact. Mm -hmm. Um just to kind of give a brief explanation of this, this is a UN pact that uh, it's non-binding, so I don't really know what it, if it matters that much, but there it's basically trying to tell people they have to take a certain number of migrants into their country. It's like the Paris Accords. Yeah, kind of like the Paris Accords. It's a non-binding, no punishments thing, but they want people to dedicate themselves to doing stuff. And so Austria has withdrawn from that. This is after the United States and Hungary withdrew from that already. Um, mm -hmm. As soon as Austria decided that they were, they were going to pull out, uh, Poland and the Czech Republic also pulled out. I haven't looked recently to see if anybody else pulled out, but from what I understood, there was a lot of the former Soviet countries were not happy at all with the way that this pact was laid out. Mm -hmm. So Hungary, Czech Republic, uh, Poland, they, they were all under the Soviet influence and they were n not pleased with what's going on with migration in Europe right now. And that's mostly it's North Africans and Middle Easterns moving in. And so uh, the Austrian chancellor, who's a relatively new chancellor, his name is uh, Sebastian Kurz, he ran on an anti-immigration platform and has been imp implementing a lot of anti-immigration policies in line with his promises um, when he was running. So uh, he's, you know, obviously because he doesn't agree with uh, he doesn't agree with the left, I guess. So he's immediately billed as far right wing. But when you look at his policies, he's not exactly far right wing. Yeah, he's kind of a socialist, but just not, not talking about their, their, you know, nanny state. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, I mean, he's he yeah, he's basically like anybody who doesn't like fully subscribe to the international globalist left wing agenda is far right wing. Even though this mm -hmm. guy, he is a nationalist, but he's pretty left wing aside from that. Yeah. And so, and, and he's not even that strong of a nationalist. He's just kind of like, yeah, we can't really handle this many immigrants. And yeah, it, they're, one of the things that people don't get is like the U.S. being able to take in as many immigrants as it did in the past was something very special. Mm -hmm. Like yeah. that's not how most countries are. Yeah. So he's got, or I guess the, the party and him have several criticisms of the U.N. Migration Pact. Um, one of them is that mixed mixes up labor migration and refugee migration from things like war or drought or that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So that's like one of their big complaints is they're like, if you're just moving to get a job, they don't want you. But if you're moving because there's a war or you actually have your an actual refugee, then they might be okay taking you in temporarily. But the, the pact apparently doesn't really specify what the difference is. No, it doesn't. Um, so the, the potential quotas that they've suggested in the pact are, according to Austria, way, way too high. Uh, the pact doesn't properly address how to integrate the new population into the country. And Austria has had a pretty big problem integrating the, the population that they've already taken in, which is they took in 1% of the total population of Austria uh, over the last like three years. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, that's a lot of people. That's that's almost as many people as the United States has in prison. So it's, it's a very large percentage of the population. Um, the PAC doesn't properly address how to send unqualified migrants back to their home country. So that, that's a big thing where they're like, well, if somebody shows up, what do we do with them? And if they're not allowed. Um, mm -hmm. And then, I, oh, actually, that's my last point was I said uh, Austria already took in 1% of its population in migrants and has had a difficult time integrating them into Austrian society. So one of the things that's not widely reported in U.S. newspapers 
but because nobody really pays attention to the mainstream media, at least exclusively anymore, a lot of people probably know this, is that Austria, Sweden, Germany, all these places have had a, a really big problem with uh, young men coming in from North Africa and the Middle East and the countries not being able to give them anything to do. Mm-hmm. And so those young men kind of form gangs and the gangs just roam around and, and they're, and they're young guys, they're restless they're horny. They don't know. They have a lot of bad, you know, a lot of negative energy that, and this is, I think, typical of all men. If men don't have something to put their energy into that's productive, they will put their energy into something that's destructive. And, uh, in a lot of cases, I don't know about Austria, but I know like in places like Sweden, um, they're kind of, they're sort of relegated to like these ghettos. They're not bad ghettos as in like it's a bad place to live. They're actually pretty nice, but they're kind of walled off. There's no job opportunities for them and there's no women mm. because that's not the people that are migrating. There's a few, but not many. And so these people, they kind of get crowded into these places and they're walled off, but they're, it's open during the day. So people come out and they come out and they actually have these rape gangs that are running around in a lot of places in Europe and they're fairly well documented, but not publicized. Mm-hmm. So Austria has actually had a huge problem with this, uh, where these gangs of migrant North Africans and Middle Easterns are capturing you know, young Austrian women and raping them and beating them up. And then when they go to the police, the police are like, yeah, we don't want a racial incident. So we are not doing anything about this. And that's kind of what the, the quote unquote far right reaction is in Europe right now is it's a lot of these people who are, who are seeing their, you know, their fellow countrymen or their loved ones having this done to them. And then the government authorities saying, yeah, we're not going to do it because we have this higher value, even though you voted for us and you pay us, we have this higher value that we're going to put over your well-being and we're not going to look for these people or prosecute them. And, and also they don't really have the power to do it either, but, yeah. they're, but then they're going to continue to let more in. Yeah, so a couple things not to push back on necessarily. Yeah. Um, so Austria has a population of 8 million. Right. It's like 8.8. So they've only let in 88,000. 8, 88, only. Yeah. <laughs> There's well, a lot of people. <laughs> but you said that was, they let in like... No, I'm saying I'm I'm sorry. What I I, I know what you're going to say. One percent of the U.S. population is in prison, and this yeah. and one percent of their population yeah. has been let in. That it's a it's a uh, yeah, it's a mix up. It, there's far more people in prison in the United States than there are people that they let in. Yeah, it was about three percent. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. So, um, but yeah, so that's the thing that like people don't seem to understand is like, and this is one of the things like I'll push back on the from to the Austrians a little bit. Mm-hmm. If you let these people in and don't have a plan for them, like they're like. Oh, oh, the plan didn't come up with something. Well, why implement something that you don't have planned out? You know what I mean? Right. Like, like, no, well, I mean, more power to them. If they don't know what to do with them. Well, no, you know? exactly. But that's what I'm saying is like in the first place, like that's one of the things that like has always been kind of the classic, you know, like you and I's position. And, uh, you know, maybe I'm, I don't think I'm misspeaking for you at this point. Um, Like we don't have a problem with immigration if the landowner that the person is immigrating to in theory doesn't mind. Right. So like, if you and I were like, hey, Afghan guy, come live with us, we're not just letting him live with us without a plan for it. Right. Like, here's the local mosque, here's, you know, the a- local Afghan population, like, you know, setting them up to succeed. Right. We're not bringing in somebody who's going to be like, oh, like, you're just going to sit there all day and yeah, well, gonna, like, yeah, and, I, and I, I very much agree with you. And a, lo- a lot of the problems that I think the European countries are having are compounded by the fact that they have such a general, generous welfare state is that there's a lot of places that people could go. And and I don't blame them at all for wanting to leave. I mean, the United States has basically decimated North Africa and the Middle East, along Mm -hmm. with a lot of these European countries, um, more so the United States. But there's not a – there's – 
I understand why they want to leave. It, it makes sense. But the reason they're attracted specifically to these countries is because these countries have an something that is attracting them. So just like Misa said, humans act and they act in their own self-interest or in their perceived self-interest. So if you are leaving a country because like Syria is a good example for this is your options in Syria are leave, be conscripted into the Assad army or be conscripted into ISIS or mm -hmm. some sort of ISIS affiliate. And those are your options. And to me, when you look at those options, leaving seems like the best option to me. So I don't I don't begrudge them the fact that they want to leave. But when you're looking at places to leave to, the one that has the most generous safety net that's going to give you free stuff, that's the one that, and I would also understand this from their perspective as well, that's the one I would want to go to as well. The problem is that these countries are, their governments are stealing from the population that already exists there, setting up these generous welfare systems to attract these other people, and then these other people go there. But humans in general, and men in particular, I think, have to be productive in order to be mm -hmm. happy. And if there's no, if the attractant is free shit and not productivity, then you're going to end up with a problem. Well, so like I'll push back a little bit. I think a lot of these places the people are thinking that they're going to be strong economies because a lot of them want to get to Germany, but I think it's because Germany has jobs. Mm -hmm. So I think they get this, they, people get this partially confused. I don't think a lot of these migrants are necessarily looking for free. I think what a lot of them are looking for is work and maybe the free stuff. Cause like a lot of times when you find out about these people, they just hear there's jobs in Germany. That's all they know is Germany's got jobs. They don't have a concept of the welfare state because. Well, no, I don't think that's true because they've done they've done different like they've asked them on their way and stuff like that and they're they're say why are you going to this place and they're like well there's free stuff and so while i'm working to get set up or whatever i'll get this free stuff but as we both know the welfare state okay. is a, is a trap it's no, that's a, true yeah that's so true. and i don't think it's because they they want to i don't think that they necessarily want to go and be a mooch like i said i think it's, mm -hmm. i think it's most men in, in particular's drive to be productive and to do and to make a difference but i think what ends up happening is they they go to these places and and we know this from like the the great society that trapped a lot of the black community is that the welfare state is a trap and it prevents people from moving forward and there's actually tom woods actually had somebody on who uh talked about this he was a he's from sweden and his parents were muslim and he says he's like i'm very grateful that um, I got the opportunity to go to, you know, free school and all this sort of thing. But um, like my dad is never going to not be on welfare. And my mom tried to go and work, but she, you know, she's not able to because it, if she tries to work harder, she'll lose all these benefits. It's, it's basically the exact same trap that mm -hmm. people in the United States fall into. It's that, it's that if they try to work, unless they're working under the table, they lose so many benefits that it doesn't make sense. And the longer you stay on welfare, the less uh, it makes sense to get off welfare because mm -hmm. you have these longer gaps in unemployment and you're, you're just your productivity level is so low that you're just never going to make up for it. Yeah. Do you remember the episode of the King, King of the Hill where Hank's talking to this old guy who came in to apply for the job and he's like, you've got a lot of employment gaps here, fella. And he's like, well, in 34 to blah, 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 FDR was in the White House. So I was on the welfare and then blah, 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 blah. Kennedy and Johnson were in the White House. So I was on the welfare. And like yeah. every time there was a, a Democratic president, he was like on the welfare. Right. So it just kind of reminds me of that. Yeah. Well, that and it doesn't. And, and you never move forward. It's, it's really very devastating. And I think that this is, I, I think, you know, to be a conspiracy theorist or whatever, there is an EU, UN 
type conspiracy to try to get these people dependent on the state so that they can implement whatever their plans are without too much resistance from nationalists. Like, mm-hmm. I think, I think that's the big thing. Like, I'm not a, I'm not a nationalist at all. Um, I mean, I think, I guess I sort of think of myself as a Californian, but, um, more of a Lindsay than mm-hmm. anything. So if there was a Lindsay land, that would be my nation, I guess. But, uh, the, one of the greatest things that globalists have a challenge with is nationalists is people who think of themselves as, Italian or Austrian or German or whatever it is. And the best way to break that up is by importing a whole bunch of people that don't think of themselves as those things and getting mm-hmm. them on welfare so that they will continue to vote for leftist policies. And, yeah, and that's one of the things they always had trouble with in the United States was so many times these people would come in and then become prosperous yeah. because they would become prosperous. And then it's like, yeah, they didn't vote left. They were like, no, like, I came here and struggled. Right. <laughs> give yeah. somebody else a free hand well that you see that a lot with like the asian community in the united states and mm-hmm. um and like the i guess indians are technically asian also but like indians a lot of times will vote republican or they'll vote what they perceive as as being less government because they worked hard and struggled and got ahead and they don't want to have to give that up yeah i mean the history Hispanics are traditionally kind of that way too. Like yeah. a lot of them are like, no, like we're here to work. Like, yeah. Well, and I think that's, I think that's changing because of the generosity of the American welfare state now. And, and it's not just like going and applying for welfare. It's things like school. Yeah. You know? So, I mean, that's like I, who, I think it was Larry Sharp was saying this is that in New York, it costs $20,000 a year to send a kid to school. 22,000. Is it 22? So if you have two kids, it's 40,000 or $44,000 a year that you're receiving from the state. So if you don't vote to continue the public school system, you're losing the, I guess, equivalent of 44. Although I don't think the value is 44,000, but the, I was gonna say, yeah, like but yeah, but I mean, but if you don't think the way that you and I think, you're kind of going like, oh, well, but if I don't vote for somebody who wants to continue having these public schools well-funded, then I'm going to lose that amount of money. And it's basically you would lose that money or you would lose whatever it costs to put your kids in daycare, Mm -hmm. which is an inflated price because the alternative is public school, which a lot of people qualify for subsidized daycare at a younger age than kindergarten anyways. Yeah. So anyways, it's it's an interesting article. Um, I I think that we're going to see a lot more of this where people are not going to be – uh, friendly toward immigrants, which is a shame because, you know, we're anarchists. I don't, I have, I, I'm an open border person, but I also understand the, the perspective of, you know, living a certain way and not wanting an overwhelmingly large number of people coming into your community and changing, especially when it's, it's an either or thing. It's like, well, for you and me, it's a neither or thing because mm-hmm. we don't, when we go vote, if we go vote, which I haven't done in several years, but if, if that happened, I guess it's been a couple, I don't know, whatever it is, but it's a neither or for us, but for like Republicans and Democrats, it's either or. So if you lose, you are a slave to the other side for X number of years. And, and they're really a slave to that side as well. And they don't, they don't realize it. It's hard to, you know, it's hard to see that you're in chains when you're putting those chains on others, but it's, it's like an either or thing. So I think we're going to see, like, I do understand that. Like it's, I am empathetic toward it. And I also don't want my money stolen and given to people who, you know, are not my family. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing is like, you were, you're married to an immigrant. Yeah. And I remember like when Victoria was shocked by how much like she was giving up by getting married to you. And, oh like, yeah. And then like when she kind of realized like, what that was costing others. Yeah. And, and like, I don't, I don't think your wife was necessarily ashamed of having gotten the benefits that she got or, and I yeah. will tentatively use the air quotes benefits, but like from that standpoint, it's like, no, like that's money out of our pockets. Right. Like, well, yeah. And she didn't, I think, well, she also lived in New York city at the time. So it was, it, 
it was very generous. Her health care was all covered, and she had a lot of other benefits um, from it as well. But I don't think she understood how much that stuff costs. Mm-hmm. And and once she, when we got married and she moved down to Virginia, she was like, what do you mean we don't have free health care? And, and I was like, it, that's not how it works. Like, you, you only get free health care if you're poor. And, <laughs> and, and what was, and it's, it's actually was a really good example. And her and I have talked about this before is she was her eye doctor. You know, I, I go to Walmart or whatever to get my eye exam. Cause it's mm-hmm. cheap. Her eye doctor was an eye surgeon, oh, yeah. but she didn't, it, it didn't occur to her to go, go somewhere else. She went to that doctor because they spoke Russian mm-hmm. and it didn't occur to her to go to a cheaper one because she wasn't paying for it. Yeah. And like, she had like her primary care physician was like, like a dermatologist or something weird. And, yeah. and it was like all of her doctors were th- these specialists that charged an enormous amount of money. And, but it, it never occurred to her to find another one. She had something in mind that that was most important to her. And that was that they speak Russian. And that is very important, especially if you don't speak English very well. And she speaks excellent English now, but when she first came to the States, she understood, she, she had a technical understanding of English, but Mm -hmm. wasn't able to speak it with people correctly. I guess it was, it was very difficult for her. She thought she knew English, but then when she got here, she was like, Oh, I don't, I don't understand English at all. And, um, so it took her a while, but it was very important for her to her doctors to speak Russian. And that's how she chose them. But she didn't realize because she was not paying for it herself, that these are specialists and the specialists cost an enormous amount of money until she came onto my insurance. And I said, no, we're not, we have copays. You have to go to a doctor and you have to shop around for price. Mm Mm-hmm. And, and price is important. And there's certain places where I'll compromise. Like I personally prefer a uh, osteopath to a regular medical doctor. Mm-hmm. And so I, I shop around for an osteopath, even if it's a little bit more expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, but I will shop around between osteopaths to see which one's less expensive and I will make sure they're a network and that kind of thing. So yeah. there is a lot more thought to go into when you're not on government subsidies to make sure that these, and that, and that was a, that's a benefit. Like I could see if, if, if she wasn't such a lot logical person because it really only took one argument for her to become an anarchist. Um, <laughs> if she wasn't such a logical person, I could see somebody in her position going like, Oh, the Republicans want to take away my health insurance. I better vote Democrat or oh, mm-hmm. the libertarians are not for universal health care. I better vote, you know, for Republican, Republican or Democrat or whoever's, you know, doing it. And that, which is why voting is such a farce because everybody gets free. Everybody's promising everybody free stuff. And like mm-hmm. the Republicans just promise like, you know, military free stuff, yeah. which is like, Oh, you'll get more protection. That's it's an enormous cost. And people don't realize that cost personally, so they they don't do any sort of shopping. What was it that like when right before nine eleven to get into conspiracies? Uh, the there wasn't there like an audit of the Pentagon, and it was like they couldn't account for like three trillion dollars or something ridiculous. Yeah, I mean it's some um, like they just failed their first audit. Oh, did they? Okay, yeah, but they were like, oh, we you know we knew that wasn't even going to happen okay like, we, we just knew it wasn't going to be passed and then like you know they're kind of like well we can we could barely be bothered for this but yeah they have like some ridiculously high audit or like review and they were just like and this was back when before you know two wars that have been going on for near 18 years or something like that right and it's like yeah we can't find x y and z amount of crap <laughs> it's like excuse me yeah well oh, yeah we can't, we can't find that and I mean, I know that I know that a lot of it is not, you know, I mean, it's the military, so probably a lot of it's nefarious, but a lot of it's like mishandling of things. So like, I remember there was a story that somebody, it might've been Scott Horton who told it, where the Auditor General, which to let everybody know, the Auditor General exists, and I had no idea that was actually a position, but mm-hmm. the Auditor General was auditing 
uh, stuff in Afghanistan. And they were not being super cooperative, but he saw these airplanes on one of the tarmacs, and he's like, what are those over there? And they're like, oh, don't worry about that. And he's like, no, like I'm the auditor general. Show me what those are. And it turned out they were like these Italian airplanes that, or maybe they were German. They were some sort of European airplanes that the United States government had bought, and they work great in Europe. But they don't work well in dusty climates. Mm. And so they just grounded them. And they were multiple millions of dollars each. And the Auditor General was like, if we can't use them here, you need to sell them to somebody who can use them, like Italy or Germany or somewhere like that. And rather than do that, the Pentagon was like, no, we'll just scrap them. And, mm -hmm. and, it, and that may have been the prudent decision. I don't know. But they end up like selling these multi-million dollar um, airplanes to some sort of scrap merchant in Afghanistan for like $20,000 each. Yeah. I mean, there's been, it was like one of the audits was like during the Pentagon audit that was like the last year or something like that. Mm -hmm. They couldn't find 22 helicopters. Yeah. Just didn't like, and that was the thing is like, they're like, we know they didn't crash. We know all the serial numbers. They're just not where they're supposed to be. You fucking kidding me? Yeah, <laughs> like, exactly. I mean, these are, these are, this is million dollars. But I mean, remember yeah. we and I had a friend in the military who said that when they would come back into port, any unopened tools, they would open and dump out the side of the boat because mm -hmm. they didn't, because they need to meet their numbers or whatever yeah they needed to like and that's the the like insanity of the government budget it's like if you don't spend this much you don't get this much next year and it's yeah. like okay like i can understand that in a situation if you were like you know like nasa years where you're like we're building this thing and then we're going to spend a bunch of money in several years mm-hmm so, like, we need to spend this money now on this research. And then, like, I get that from, like, a corporate standpoint. NASA's, like, for me, like, NASA's the one thing in the government where it's kind of like, well, I don't agree with it. But if you're going to be spending money, a lot of the stuff they do is interesting, at least. Right. Yeah. And I, I mean, I, I, everybody's got their thing where it's like, this is what I would cut last. Yeah. And, and NASA's, mean, like, one of those things where it's like, well, I, I just don't really care that much about it other than it's interesting. And the last thing, I, I think the last thing I would cut is the national parks. Because I'm like... Well, if we got rid of the warfare state, we got rid of the welfare state, we'd be okay with the park. Well, I, I would be, I'd be saving those parks for reparations. So, well, I don't think they're worth what people claim they're worth. <laughs> I don't, I don't know what they're worth at all. But what I would do is, is so like, like, I, like I was saying earlier, like forty nine percent or something like that of California is owned by the federal and state government. Mm -hmm. So the federal lands, what I would do is they would all be uh, put into corporate trusts and divide and shares would be issued and preferred shares would be given to like Native Americans and people who could directly trace their lineage back to slaves. And so you would you would do that and you would give them preferred shares. Everybody else would get even amounts of shares. And then you say, this is what we're doing and that's it. And take it or leave it. And then that would be hopefully the end of the argument or at least that, that would give people say, well, no, you did get reparations. And then whatever happened to those corporate shares, it would end, it would end up washing out. And my guess is what would happen is it would end up consolidating and you would have very corporations that would that would run different ones and there would be like the there would probably be like the you know half dome national park or yosemite national park uh you know corporation and it would be run by whoever the native people were there or whatever groups of native people were there and then like on top of half dome there would be like a casino or something mm -hmm. cool and and they would use that money and it would probably be to preserve it because if you if you actually look at the numbers the amount of people who go to yosemite it should be cash cash positive and it's not because mm -hmm. for whatever reason they it, it's not that expensive to maintain it but for some reason because it's the government it is very difficult for them to maintain it and but the cost is very very high to enter and mm -hmm. it's just it's pensions and 
waste and you know fraud that sort of stuff it it ends up just getting you know lost in the in the big corporate or not the corporate the big you know bureaucratic mess that's the government but there's so a lot of these parts ducks unlimited yeah exactly ducks unlimited could do it or the boy scouts of america or the boys and girl scouts of america or whatever it's called now um called the commie scouts of yeah, commie land right the commie scouts of commie lands or like the the uh you know the mormon scouts or whatever they're called i guess actually weren't the mormons ones who took over the boy scouts or something like that or they tried to or whatever was going on yeah anyways that's the end of that whole rant uh do we want to do one wine article before we sign off yes okay so this wine article is interesting and it's uh i don't know if you got a chance to read over it but it's from uh okay but it's pretty interesting and it it's from um it's from the spoke the spokesman review uh which is a i think a washington uh newspaper or news site uh and it's about well i'll tell you the title so you'll you'll understand what it's about it says new u.s mexico canada trade deal could open up bc grocery stores to washington wine sales so that's the title um, and so just to give a little bit of backstory on this and it's in the article, so we'll put links to that in the show notes. Um, the current regulations in, <sighs> you okay? I was just sneezing. Oh, okay. Uh, the current regulations in the British Columbia, um, prevent grocery stores from treating domestic and imported wines the same. So wines that are imported have to be kept in a separate section of the store and checked out separately from the other items in the grocery store. This law, it's weird, but this law, I guess, applies only to grocery stores. So if you go to a liquor store or a wine store, the wine, domestic and foreign, are uh, they're in the same area. But for some reason in grocery stores, they have to be separate. So um, that's at least that's what the article implies. I'm not exactly sure why that is the deal or how long it's been that way, but for some reason they just have these weird grocery store laws. Um, but the new U.S.-Mexico-Canada trade agreement, <laughs> which is a terrible name for an agreement, but uh, <laughs> this is the new one that I guess Trump's been working on because he said everything was so unfair. Um, this would – part of this new agreement would get rid of this restriction. Now, this would be uh, particularly good for Washington wines because Canada is the largest source of export revenue for wines in Washington, which makes sense because uh, it's right there on the border. And Washington does make a lot of very good wines, um, mostly from like the Columbia Valley. And uh, the I know there's one like with a really bizarre name, but I can't remember what it is right now. But uh, it's, it's about $10 million a year in export revenue. Um, so they also did some research, I guess, with – British Columbia winemakers, which I didn't realize they grew wine that far north, right? Or if I did know that, I had forgotten about it. Um, but they uh, the, they did some like interviews with the British Columbia winemakers, and the British Columbia winemakers were kind of like, well, we're not really that worried about it. Uh, there's a pretty strong buy local movement here, and um, wine are, their wines do very well in the wine and liquor stores, even though they are mixed. And so they said, well, if we lose exclusivity in the grocery stores, it's just not that big of a deal. Um, and also it's not a huge population. So I guess their main source of revenue is not actually British Columbia. I think there's like 3 million people in Vancouver. Um, and I think that's their largest city. Mm-hmm. So it's not – it's not. I guess they're just not that worried about it. Um, what I did think was also interesting about this article is so there is a huge import tax on wines coming into Canada. So – you can bring two bottles of wine from Washington into Canada with no charge. But if you do any more than two bottles of wine, it will change the cost of a $20 bottle of wine you know, from Washington into a $43 or $45 bottle of wine in British Columbia. Holy moly. So, yeah, so it more than doubles the price. But wine coming from British Columbia 
into the United States has a nominal import fee that's like a couple of bucks. Mm-hmm. So I think I, th- I thought that was very interesting. And this is kind of, I guess, what Trump was saying is very unfair about a lot of the trade agreements is that both Canada and Mexico have a lot of these kind of weird regulations on specific products where mm-hmm. they will put a flat fee or a percentage fee on American products coming into either or country. And that is not reciprocated by the United States, mm-hmm. which, you know, that kind of sucks for American sellers, but you know, Bob Murphy has gone into this quite a bit where if somebody else is putting a tariff on your goods, that it just sort of, I, I don't it's know a how to, yeah, it's a, it's a ta- yeah, exactly. It's a tax on them. It may, it may incentivize them not to buy your product, but the thing is if they are buying some of your product, then they have American dollars and they have to spend those American dollars on American products. Mm-hmm. So they've got to buy something from America and they just now, well, now they have more dollars that are American dollars. So they would have to convert them some way and buy something here. Well, so I think that's a straw man argument on the last part there okay because the dollar is the reserve currency so no you don't have to spend any dollars in the united states you can just buy european goods because most of them trade in dollars anyway well you'd have to that's a it's a reserve currency that's true but because the world is engaged in fractional reserve banking you don't have to keep 100 percent on reserves so if you're maxed out on your reserves why would you take more dollars no no I, well i guess what i should say is like the way I think about it is from the end buyer, mm-hmm. and the end buyer has dollars, but they could trade in, do a, like you don't have to then transact with U.S. people. From a more nationalistic standpoint, I think what you're saying does make a lot more sense. Um, but like from a you know markets aren't individ- they're individualized, they're not a whole. You know, it, it really isn't as restrictive as people or isn't like doesn't force transactions with the United States is the way people think, but. I think more people end up transacting with the United States anyway. So, um, but the other thing is, so like my problem with this sort of thing is like, if the the restriction is BC only, that's actually the national government putting the boot on the BC government. Right. Well, and I thought about that as well. And I was, I was wondering, is this a, cause we, we, you know, you're not, well, at least me, I'm, I'm a huge proponent of secession. So if, mm-hmm. if mm-hmm. local governments want to do stuff, even if it's bad stuff, it's, you know, lo- let the local governments do it and then let the people deal with it. Um, mm-hmm. I think, that, and I would hope that that would put a bad taste of government in general in their mouth. But uh, I don't know if it's a BC specific thing or if it's a Canada thing. But it well, seems I, like it's like when you read the article, it's specifically saying BC. Well, this is one of those things where I think this is a badly written article. Okay. Because it's badly researched because it's from Spokane, okay. spokesman Spokane. So, you know, it's what's. Spokane's not far from the border, I don't think. I, th- um, uh, I don't know. I, I know it's in eastern Washington, but I don't know where it, specifically it is. So, like, this is one of those ones where it conflates stuff in BC with, um, good lord, I'm getting this worse than I meant to. Um, it conflates things going on in the local area with things in the national, right. like how things are structured. It's like, oh, we clearly don't know the answer. So that's where people are like, oh, blah, blah, blah. This is the problem of the United States. And you look at the law and it's like, no, that's just Florida. Right. Like that's some dumb Florida law or dumb Texas or Virginia law, not to, you know, poop on um, <laughs> specifically. In, yeah, in a particular state. Yeah. yeah. Unless it's California. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or Colorado that has apparently decided that they're going to um, adopt the uh, Cal- or Colorado, which is going to adopt the emissions regulations of California. Oh, oh joy. Well, on the bright they- side, though, Col- Denver is going to legalize uh, psilocybin. So. <laughs> Ooh. 
possibly. That's, they're, they're working awesome. on it. They're working on it. Yeah. So, but you know, that's the so the like this is one of those things that people like never really kind of put together. It's like people are like, you know, it's like when you read on uh, Reddit, people are like, oh, it's so nice in Europe where you could just walk in and buy something and it's the price. It's like, yeah, because you have a national sales tax. Right. Now, I would yeah. I would much prefer. To get to the register and be like, why am I paying seven dollars more for this stuff? And then go like, oh, that's right, the government's stealing from me. I would, I would much rather people know that. Yeah, and and that's the thing that like always makes me laugh when people are like, oh, it's like blah blah blah. You never know. And it's like, well, one, if you forget that there's sales tax, like if you're foreign to the U.S. and you don't realize there's sales tax, you're an idiot because. When Americans come over and complain about like other crap that you guys have, you're always like, oh, you know, as we were talking about right. the wine thing where people like seem to like to just they like to somehow find a way to crap on the United States. It's like you guys realize your prosperity is mainly driven by our stupidity. Right. Like, oh, blah, 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 all this stuff. It's like, yeah, no. Yeah. Well, that's it's, it's specifically when it irritates me. Yeah, to let the listeners in on what you and I were discussing earlier yeah, is, yeah, is that there's so th- there's something like I listen to a lot of wine podcasts and read a lot of wine articles because of this show mo- mostly, but just because it's, it's interesting. But there, I, I wasn't really able to pinpoint what it was about a lot of wine people that I didn't like. And it's and when I was listening to this podcast today, and it may not be all wine people, but this wine person in particular, it's that she gives these. I don't even know if she realizes she's doing it, but they're kind of like backhanded. Like Americans are so backward, but she's American, and Mm -hmm. but it'll be like this in this particular episode. It was specifically about uh, how strict the Europeans are on viticulture areas, Mm -hmm. and she's like, "Well, Americans, you know, our government hasn't gotten there yet." Into and it's like, think about what you're saying. Is that you want the government to violently force people to restrict their wine making abilities basically and one of the things that makes the American wine growing so exciting and New World in general so exciting is that we're not stuck in these old ways. Mm-hmm. There is a lot of value from these old ways, and, I, and I'm and i very happy that Europe still does a lot of their traditions and stuff like that, but I do not want those traditions forced on America. It doesn't. It's not part of our culture, and it doesn't fit us. It's part of the French culture. Let them have their culture and let us have our culture. Our culture is experimentation and innovation. Their mm-hmm. culture is old, mothball-y dusty and that's fine <laughs> their wines are very good but it's our wines the, are better the, yeah the, exactly the the french didn't break sonoma and napa napa and sonoma <laughs> broke the french yeah exactly so it's like why would we adopt their ways and this and this is just in you know and and as i learn more about wine my opinion on this sort of thing may change a little bit but, you know, as as much as I said, I'm not nationalistic. Uh, I like it when people do things differently and when they just take the initiative to do it. Mm-hmm. So I want I want Americans to continue just doing their weird American thing. And this is what I think why we brought so many of those Oregon wine articles up before was that you don't need the government involved in your wine production. Like let let you let everybody experiment. If you don't think it's the right way to do it, then you do it the way you think is the right way to do it. If they're perpetrating fraud, that's a different story. But if if you want them to produce wine a particular way, you produce it the way that you think is best and then market it correctly and let them do their whatever weird thing they want to do and it may be better wine and then you'll learn something from them. Yeah, so, and that's the thing. It's like so one of the things I forgot to mention about this wine that I had. Yeah. El Pastor uh, Tempanilo. Um, 
they there's a like a certification of like origination on the bottle mm. that's like a separate label and it's got like stamps and everything on it but it's like when i looked it up it's like uh for the it's it's like quasi government as best i can tell okay so and that's one of the things that we've always talked about it like especially in the wine it's like you know if you're you know you can make it get a maker's mark right or like your wine growing area or a sticker or whatever it is and that's the thing that like people just don't seem to get is like just because somebody does something different than you doesn't mean you have to force them to do what you're doing right and and, they, and you know what and it and it may be that their wine is shit but let yeah. them do it and let them discover that on their own or let their consumer discover right. like this is like the value of you know consumer feedback is immense mm-hmm. yeah it is and speaking of consumer feedback i learned something about wine this week that i don't know if i knew before and i'm okay. going to share it with you did cool. you know that some wine is made out of a powdered grape? I, I won't say I didn't hear that previously, but that is not something that I actively knew. Okay. I, I just learned this this week, and I was I was like amazed by it. Apparently, the powdered grapes, it's widely accepted that they are not as high of quality. I'm, I'm curious to try powdered wine, and, but they said that a lot of it is the very cheap wines so like what you'd get at aldi or from Lidl or somewhere like that mm-hmm. um i'm very curious to figure out which ones are powdered and what whatnot and there's a very inexpensive way for you to figure it out oh yeah and the way that you do it is you pour a shot glass full of the wine mm-hmm. and you put the shot glass very slowly into a bowl of water and okay. if, if the wine comes out of the shot glass and becomes clear in the shot glass or diluted in the shot glass, then it is powdered wine. If you put the wine in the water very slowly and the wine mostly stays in the shot glass, it is not powdered wine. And it is a it is a like a pure natural type wine. Hmm. So I thought that was very interesting. And I am very curious to figure out if those that pretty good Winking Owl one we had from Lidl, mm-hmm. um, which I didn't think was outstanding, but I thought it was pretty good. I'm curious to know if that was powdered or if it was if it's just low quality wine and i haven't done a huge amount of research i imagine that powdering it and then reconstituting it somewhere else is probably to save on shipping because it's wine with the liquid and it's very heavy so mm-hmm. i would imagine that's cost a lot to ship but if you can ship the powder and then have them locally bottle it and rehydrate it i guess um then it would be that would be a different way to do it. And then also, I'm not sure though, like how I guess powdered alcohol exists, but like how do you make sure that it stays? I, I don't know. I'm very curious about this process now. I just learned it the other day. You apparently can buy powdered wine on Amazon. Oh, interesting. Okay, there's no alcohol in it, but oh, I guess you you would have to add it. Uh, yeah, that is is mainly for baking. Oh, interesting. Okay. Well, I'm very curious about it now and because I saw it just came up on my YouTube feed and I was like, holy cow, I didn't know there's powdered wine. So this makes me like think there's there's a market for being the first to come to like to like the Jason, the <laughs> Jason, <laughs> get my own name wrong. Yeah. The Jacob and Mason powdered wine experience. Right. Where like we take it to the, like the max. So like, you know, in um like molecular gastronomy, which is the, the science of food. Uh-huh. And they have those people who like, they take like these nine ingredients and they like foamize them and they like atomize, they like do all this crazy stuff. And then they like make a hamburger and there's no beef in it. And then you like eat it and you're like, this tastes exactly like a hamburger. Right. Like, a lot of Anthony Bourdain's like French and Span- Spanish episodes. They, he went to a lot of molecular gastronomy like experts. Mm. So like I'm just imagining like us like taking like the best wine in the world and like making a wine powder out of it, or like you know like um, you know pick the best kept 
Cabernet buying those grapes and then making powder out of it and then like somehow making amazing wine out of it and being like, ha yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, we fooled you or we broke you or something. Yeah, I'm, cause it, there's got to be an advantage to it or otherwise people wouldn't do it. Well, like what I think is like think about um think about what's going on in the, those the smoke taint. Oh yeah. So like you and I are on the back end with dehydrators going okay. You've got to get rid of this wine and like, so let's say that, you know, in the Chinese market, they don't care or it's not that they don't care, but like they may not know the difference or they may not really need to appreciate the difference. The same with the cheap American market. You buy that, those grapes on excess, you know, low cost, Mm -hmm. they got to clear the inventory and then you, you know, powder it and then sell it off. Cause I, I think that this is one of the things that like, like I feel sorry for the people in Oregon Mm -hmm. that they didn't have better contracts right but i also think like you're an effing idiot for not having better contracts yeah so like you know somebody comes in and goes okay well you know i need to be able to produce this much wine powder for whatever like it to me it just makes complete sense so like because everyone always seems to act like oh the wine, you know and this is going back to that um as we were talking about people kind of having a snobbery like all of the wines all the grapes have to be used right no like you you have excess capacity and under capacity every year like nobody ever hits it exactly head on you know nail on the head every year right so clearly like they had to come up with a way to deal with this excess wine and powderizing it and then like especially like Let's say, like, if you could have done that during Prohibition, mm-hmm. like, well, we're not, we're, we're making wine powder and selling it to the Europeans or, you know, yeah, wherever to, for, you know, food waste or something. Yeah. But, yeah. I, I, I'm very curious about this process. I think I'm going to put it on my list of things to look up because I, I, like, it sounded like utterly fascinating to me. I was like, that is really interesting. Yeah. That, so. that sounds super cool to me. All right. Well, I think that's a good place then to wrap it up. Um, do you want to do plugs? Yeah. So uh, real quick, uh, the wine is El Tensador, um, and then it's the Tempanello or Tempranello. We need to find yeah. somebody who knows how to pronounce yeah. this. Well, we got to look on YouTube and just like yeah, Tempanello. Temp- uh, yeah, we, we got to look yeah. it up on YouTube. Okay. Um, I had the 2017 variety. It is very acidic, so my mouth is uh, very, not dry, but like the back end is dry, but there's an, plenty of salivation in my mouth. So, mm-hmm. so it's um, very acidic, yeah. Yeah, high acidity. Um, medium body is a great description of it. It doesn't sit heavy on the mouth. I mean, even being 14% alcohol, when I pull air across it, across it, not a lot of off vapor. Like, I mean, it does a good job of retaining the alcohol in it um good yeasty flavor or smell um but it doesn't translate to the taste as much Mm -hmm. which is really nice because it it has that medium body red uh definitely fruity uh, like for (laughs) 6.99 it is a great bottle of wine and i would laugh so hard if it was powdered wine (laughs) (laughs) i should i should try that if i can grab if i can grab one and try try the powdered wine experiment or whatever and find out oh yeah just imagine if the pinot was oh my gosh that would be crazy because that was so good yeah i know (laughs) yes so here's the thing like I just the like this is one of those ones like I know you like free show a lot mm-hmm. and I don't it's not that I dislike free show it's so different than every other um uh every other cabernet to me okay like if this El Pastor or Panzador uh is different than every other one of these wine varieties mm-hmm. this bridal I'm gonna be so disappointed because I like this one so much <laughs> and I was gonna 
laugh if it's kind of like my introduction to the wine type like uh freak show was your introduction to cabernet and it's yeah. like and, and it is it is very on. different and i, I wouldn't yeah. say my i've changed my mind on freak show but it, it's uh now that i've had so many other cabs yeah. I, I recognize that it is a 16 dollar cab yeah and you and you recognize that it it is different yeah it is very but different it's it's yeah no no yeah yeah but yeah, yeah. I, I i still like it it's just it is different yeah i really want to find um because they like the on the uh, wine.com article, they talk about like the aging ones of this variety. Oh, okay. And like they get like tobacco taste and like old leather, like they, they, and they age them in oak. Okay. And I, I can't wait to exp- like, it's not that I haven't been excited about wine, mm. but like I'm really excited about trying different ones of these. So do they mean, and, do they mean aged? Like barrel aged, or do they mean bottle aged? Because you could, Both. since they're six ninety nine or whatever, you could go buy four or five of them and just stick them in your cupboard until you're ready to try uh, so, them in a couple of years. So this one is, uh, so yeah, like they, um, the in the article that I posted um, in the notes, they talk about it and. They, the Spanish have a different, you know, legal requirements, obviously, because mm-hmm. that's, it's Europe. Um, but they basically say if the wine is aged this long in the oak barrel and in the bottle, you can call it this. Got it. And Got this it. and this and this. So I don't think bottle aging it from here necessarily will develop anything, but you're right. I, I could do that. Yeah. And I might just do that, um, try to pick it up because this is such a great, great bottle of wine. Uh, plugs otherwise, tastinganarchy.com, uh, tastinganarchy on Gmail if you want to email us. And then if you want to see Jacob uh, interacting with the fags and other friends of liberty and well, not friends, because occasionally yeah. you will yell at Diane <laughs> Feinstein or Bernie Sanders or one of them. They, they never yeah. respond, but it's still fun. Yeah, uh, tastinganarchy on twitter.com. Um, also the friends against government, like, I know you, and not, not that you're burned out on Scott Horton, but he has been in a lot of stuff. He's coming back on Tom next week. Okay. But the episode with the friends against government with Scott Horton on it is to me such a great episode because it like, Tom is one of those guys that like, I'm, I don't listen to every episode that Tom puts out because there are some episodes I'm just not interested in. Right. But if you told me, if you told me an episode that I wasn't interested in Tom Woods was a good episode, I'm going to go listen to it right away. There's very few other podcasts like that. And like one of my favorite guests is Scott Horton, because like you can kind of tell Scott is more like a normal guy Mm -hmm. and, you know, like we'll swear and, and, you know, kind of get on long tangents. Like he's less polished than than Tom and Bob. Right. And uh, one of the things about that friends against government episode with Scott is it's just Scott being Scott and the guys being the guys. And like, there's such a good chemistry, Mm -hmm. like, but it was also it was coming their their previous episode. It was coming off of a, a topic that Scott was involved in when he was younger, and that was uh, pirate radio. Mm-hmm. And they had uh, a, an expert basically on pirate radio who writes for Reason on the previous week. That was a very very interesting episode as well. And yeah, they I were able catch to kind of, back and check that one out. Okay. Yeah, they, they were able to kind of play off of that a little bit with Scott because that's something that he did a bunch when he was younger. Yeah. And uh it was it was a really good episode. And you're right, I, I'm not burned out on him, but it's 
like he just all of a sudden he's on like every single show and because he's a foreign policy expert uh he basically said the same thing on all of them except for on the friends against government yeah and it was that, like that was more refreshing it was more just about him yeah and that's and that's one of the things that like i don't want to like i'm not saying that you're doing the wrong thing mm-hmm. but scott being everywhere saying the same thing is no, to good. me yeah. getting that critical mass right and and like i'm just imagining like scott like suddenly being on cnn like you know how dave smith is on those yeah yeah i think suddenly, he's back on like, kennedy so yeah can you imagine a panel show where scott and dave are on it well i yeah, I, I mean, I, I hope it would be good, but at the same time, it's uh, a lot of the stuff that Scott says doesn't lend itself to the 15-second soundbite. No, but that's that's where I think, like, because Dave can translate Scott so well. Right. I, I, like, it, and this thing is Scott can do it. Yeah. He just doesn't because he's used to long format. That's true. And, like, I think that's what would be really great is, like, seeing that thing and yeah. but that leads me to, to my hope that suddenly malice would be in a bunch of it too because like the three of them to me is like kind of the ultimate like libertarian anarchist podcast that yeah. i want to hear is like scott horton michael malice and dave smith like talking like if they were all three on joe rogan at once that, like yeah, be, they, they, he, that would end up being like a five-hour episode <laughs> it should be it just wouldn't end yeah it'd just be like eh. yeah it'd be good it'd just there should be a video of like michael malice and dave smith and like scott horton all trying to work out at the same time with yeah. joe rogan and joe rogan <laughs> just like you know like punching through walls and like right. doing backflips and like Michael Malice is like because Michael Malice is relative, really well in shape. Yeah, um, he's like not keeping up, but doing pretty good. Right. <laughs> the other two are just like, what's wrong with these guys? Right. And yeah, Dave, Dave's got like smoker's lung, and <laughs> and Scott's just like doing kickflips or right. something. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I can see that. that'd be fun. <laughs> Actually, speaking of uh, of Michael Malice, his his podcast, "You're Welcome," I'd like to shout out because he had a dog episode, and oh man, that was a really good episode. And I'm so obsessed with my dog. Yeah. Uh, like like listening to it, I was like, "This is really fascinating stuff," and maybe it'll help me train Foxy a little bit. Which I, I've thought about buying you that book. Well, I'm such a pushover. That's I think the biggest problem with me training the dog is that she gives me like a, a look, and I'm like, "Oh, she's too cute." <laughs> so, well, I think the, I think with that book, like that guy has the perfect attitude because he yeah. loves his dogs and he's a pushover to his dogs, but he also recognizes what's good for them. Right. Right. Like, and it was such a it's not a humanizing episode of michael malice but it's such a different side of yeah, malice. yeah well and that's what i really like about listening to your welcome is he does occasionally have these other interests and i think and you and i've talked about this a little bit and actually i was talking to it about about it with car camp but as i think that like the niche that we fall into in this podcast and like the culinary libertarian which is another great podcast you guys should listen to um is we're kind of falling in, falling into the cultural libertarian arena, I guess, mm-hmm. is that there's there's enough political podcasts, and we do a lot of political stuff here just because being political is part of the libertarian culture. And, uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, but I think that that is where you are going to make inroads is the libertarian party, as fun as it is, it is not really going to affect anything. I mean, Gary Johnson got 15% in New Mexico, and he used to be the governor. Uh-huh. And that's a really great showing, but... You know, a loss is a loss still, and that's the way that the political system works is that he lost just as much as the Republican, and the Republican lost just as much as him. And for the next, I guess it was a Senate position, so what, six years? Yep. So for the next six years, anybody who didn't vote for the Democrat uh, and probably most of the people who voted for the Democrat are now going to be subject to somebody they don't agree with. Yeah, and, and that, so this is one of those things where, like, I agree with that to a point, and 
this is you know kind of classic not us right but like that's the difference with somebody like ron paul because mm-hmm. if ron paul had been the governor of texas and ran as a libertarian he's picking up that he's picking up the senatorial seat yeah that's like, possible the, the problem i think is and this is kind of the like and i don't think like if Larry, if Larry uh, Sharp had been a Republican governor of New York and then had run for Senate or something, he's pick as a libertarian. He's picking up the seat. He is such a like everybody who like even Bill Weld. Bill Weld is just that much more charismatic than Gary Johnson these yeah. days. Well, Gary like, Johnson is definitely an odd duck, and that's really yeah. what I like about him. I don't think I don't think he's a very good libertarian, but he's such a weirdo that like I appreciate him. I, and that's the thing. That's the thing I think about Gary Johnson is he's a good libertarian. He's not a good anarchist. Yeah, that's probably and, true. Yeah. And like I hate to draw that distinction, but there is that distinction. Yeah. Like you know, Larry Sharp is really a great libertarian who's basically an anarchist. Yeah. Yeah. He like look, <laughs> and he's so much more dedicated to the cause of getting people there. Right. Whereas you and I are kind of like, well, you're not on our level. We are not telling you that we won't talk to you. Right. We're just not going to spend most of our day talking to you about this. Like right. we've got other things to do. Like yeah. go make money or something. Yeah. So, well, yeah, exactly. Like, and that's kind of that's what I think is going to make the difference is spreading a cultural movement. And this is kind of the Quakers' version of evangelizing is not trying to get people to convert is just being a good example. Mm-hmm. And then the libertarian good example. And then in addition to that is making money and, yeah. then, and then you wield a different kind of influence market influence you wield both and yeah. like on that yeah. <laughs> Lars Ulbrich is still in jail for not committing any crimes right but they did um, they did meet their goal for their fundraiser so congratulations yes. to them on that congrats to them um hopefully, tasting anarchy made a modest donation good good uh let me know how much I owe you for that but <laughs> yeah so hopefully uh Merry Christmas how about that <laughs> <laughs> that'll work but uh yeah I think this was a good episode everybody you know let us know what you guys think uh, if there's a wine you want us to talk about if there's a variety you think we're truly missing out on especially if it's one i've badmouthed before let me know tell me what i should try in it um you know price range under 30 and give us like let us know what's going on guys we we see you out there in japan downloading come on yeah exactly <laughs> something. we got google translate <laughs> yeah all right well have a great night everybody stay free yes fighting all night knock down windows and tear down door drinking afghans and calling for more drinking wines for you to drink wine wines for you to drink wine wines for you to drink wine pass that bottle to me hoy drink it man Oh, give me some of that slop. Oh, pass that bottle to me. If you want to get along in Peterstown, buy some wine and pass it around. Age runs up to 49. All them cats, they love sweet wine. Drinking wine for you to drink wine. Wine for you to drink wine. Wine for you to drink wine. Pass that bottle to me. Hoy! Wine, wine, wine. Elderberry. Wine, wine, wine. Cherry, cherry. Wine, wine, wine. Blackberry. Wine, wine, wine. Horton sherry. Wine, wine, wine. Oh, pass that bottle to me. Now down on Gilsey at Willie's Den. He wasn't selling for an American gin. One soldier wanted a bottle of wine. He hit that cat for a dollar and a dime. I drink a wine for the Udy, drink wine. Wine for the Udy, drink wine. 